0: The book of Colossians is hopefully before you there. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, as you likely expect, to, to the church at Colossae, a place that uh, the Apostle Paul potentially, uh, I'm not sure how much time he spent there, he certainly didn't start the church at Colossae. Uh, Epaphras seems to be the one that people look to for that and Epaphras uh, also visited the Apostle Paul, um, and so we trust that um, that's the situation here. Colossae was really in a triad of three cities, pretty close together, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Laodicea is mentioned, was mentioned in the reading that you heard in chapter 2 here, but nonetheless it was a place, uh, of course, made up of Gentile uh, believers, the church that is, in an area that no doubt was was filled with debauchery and sin not unlike our own culture certainly in some ways different. And so in the letter to the church here at Colossae we have this uh, really very notorious if you will legendary idea that the apostle Paul is dealing with and that is the Colossian heresy. This what is he what is he working through what is he combating here? And so we see that laid out for us in in this passage of Scripture read to you, and certainly it is the, the thrust, the main idea in the letter to the church at Colossae. And that speaks to the reason that we're looking at all of the Bible. We, we're here in Paul's letters. Uh, we've looked at um, most of the Old Testament. We've got, uh, if you're counting, I think we've got about nine minor prophets or eight minor prophets to go. So if you've if you've held on to uh, Providence Reformed Baptist Church that long, you've heard you've heard messages on all of those books of the Bible, and uh, and we're interspersing the New Testament with those, and here we are at the Apostle Paul's letter to Colossae in an attempt, really, to understand. Uh, this isn't exactly a survey of the Bible, but it's the, the idea here is that we're looking thematically at the progress of redemption. What is it that God is revealing uh, in each book of the Bible? And in the letter to the Colossians, it's not a very difficult thing to center on the real main thrust here. And that is in chapter 2, verses 1 really through 23. And uh, I am in no way attempting to imply that the rest of the book of Colossians is not worthy of a verse-by-verse proclamation, but nonetheless, as we step through the Bible, it's our intent to get a a really a grasp of the comprehensive nature of the Scriptures, really in a fashion... um, over the course of perhaps your ability to remember at least some of those things and then apply those things to your own day as we also step more particularly into other books of the Bible. So the Apostle Paul was combating the Colossian error, as I mentioned, in which the believers were longing for release from the cable of their evil past, as William Hendrickson says so well. And so they, these believers at Colossae, they're dealing with the exact same thing that each of us deals with. And Hendrickson uses this term, cable, the cable of their evil past. They, they were very interested in sanctification. The believers at Colossae were, were interested, as is absolutely normal, it is the corresponding action to new life in Christ that we want to become like him. The writer of Hebrews says, consider Jesus And the idea there is simply, if we know Christ, we'll want to be with Him and like Him. And so that's not a bad question to ask yourself this morning. Do you profess faith in Christ? And if you do, do you genuinely want to be with Christ? Is His person attractive to you? Do you long to be acceptable to Him more and more in your own personal sanctification. Yes, you're justified because of the work of the Lord Jesus. But your justification is merely a declaration. I say merely, I don't mean to minimize it in any way, but nonetheless, the true condition of your soul has much work to be done. And as you become more like your Savior, you'll recognize a growing desire to be with Him. And the Colossian believers desired to be with Christ. They, they had, a, they had a, a view with clarity about what their future would be like. It was a future that involved heaven, a place of perfection, a place of holiness. A place where, where they would long more and more and enjoy the sweetness of no longer sinning. Where they truly desired fellowship with Christ and with other believers. And I'm persuaded that in our day um, that may be something that uh, is a little strange for us. We uh, swim as it were, in a culture that is so utterly uh, narcissistic and centered on self that uh, it is possible and likely that we may even desire sanctification primarily for ourselves. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul is getting at with Colossae is that this growing in grace Uh, your God and my God has designed that you basically, the primary methodology by which you grow in grace and unity to your Savior is in the context of the local body of believers. And if you somehow find yourself uh, sort of turned off by the squeaky boots, as it were, the nasally singing, the whatever the case may be by your friends and neighbors at church. Heaven may be a disappointment to you. But we want to prepare you for heaven, for the glories of heaven. And heaven is not a place of solitary confinement. Heaven is a place that is filled with blood-bought people by our Savior. And it is a place where we can express to the fullest measure our delight to be with Christ and His people. This does speak to your appreciation for the gathering. Of the saints. Paul was combating this this Colossian error, as I said, for believers that longed for release from this strong cable of those inclinations of their evil past. They lived in a wicked environment that was hostile to their faith and holiness. Their hearts were not fully consecrated and would not be that way overnight. If uh, your little Google matrix is like mine, you uh, are likely inundated with recommendations that you drink a spoonful of something to get rid of something else. The Apostle Paul here is combating a heresy that basically implied that there's an easy way to sanctification. But the Apostle Paul has already made it clear that there's not any gimmicks to sanctification. Right? It's a putting on and a putting off. Also... Fourthly, you had this idea that Satan was ever present and working against them as well. Satan has no sidelines. He does not have a side hustle. Satan does not have other ideas that he does when he isn't busy making a mess of the life of believers. That's what he that's his job. That's what he does. 24 7. Satan is bound and determined to ruin your walk with Christ. He is very interested in you. And it is is possible that Satan is more interested in your soul than you are. And the Colossian believers understood that. They desperately longed to walk faithfully in Christ. They affirmed the new birth in Christ. and They wanted to be like Him. But they didn't have a full grasp. They didn't have, of course, the advantages that we do, even of having the Scriptures written down. And so they were drawn into false teaching. The Judaizers insisted that the way to combat these things was Christ plus the Jewish ceremonial law circumcision, dietary laws, special seasonal observances, and so forth. You can look here uh, at the balance of the chapter 2 here in verse 16. He says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That reference to Sabbath there, by the way, is the idea of a special Sabbath. If you're getting the notion that he's referring to perhaps a mundane approach to the one day in seven that the fourth commandment refers to, you would be terrifyingly wrong about that verse in 16, just so you know. But nonetheless, these are the Jewish ceremonial laws that the Judaizers, the Judaizer heresy was Preferring and imposing on the Colossian believers. They longed to walk with Christ and to be faithful and to grow in sanctification. And the false teachers, the Judaizer sect, they were saying, Well, here's how to do this. There's a certain knowledge that you don't have, and this is it. You've got to add to the Lord Jesus Christ the old physical tradition of circumcision. You've got to involve yourself in these dietary laws. You've got to continue in this process, and what would that do for them? Well, for a short period of time, perhaps on the surface, they might feel a little bit holy. you've had that same experience. That's the the life experience that's common to all of us, right? We We do a neat church thing, and then it's possible that we feel simply because we did that a little bit closer to Jesus. But in your heart of hearts, you recognize... That what just occurred was a surface thing. And that there was no spiritual work that occurred. But it creates a thirst for more. And there's the idea. And that was why the Apostle Paul was kept up at night. Paul could see through these flimsy human ideas as yet another way to indulge the flesh. Verse 23 of chapter 2, "...these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." The Christian religion, the biblical religion, is in no way reducing the importance and the actual reality of the fact that we are two-part beings, soul and body, spirit and physical and so forth, physical and non-physical, two-part beings. But the idea here is this old cable, if you will, of sinfulness that the Colossians fully understood, as do we, uh, has to do with this idea of living life in a sensual way, in a sensory way. See, here, feel, touch, taste. And that somehow impacting that could make them feel better in a certain way, but he again placed that yet in the same category as the other sins. A mere indulgence of the flesh. The false teachers were proposing that the way to holiness, the way to overcoming their old sinful ways of self-centered living, of sexual promiscuity, of unrighteous anger, of gossip and slander, of the wasting of time, passion, obscene talk, was to successfully enter into the Jewish ceremonial laws of circumcision. And the dietary laws that, in fact, Christ was never intended to be a whole Savior for the whole person. But that he was to be set alongside these long-standing Jewish rites. What they were saying is, yes, the Lord Jesus, yes, we, we appreciate what he has done. But he was never intended to do this. He was never intended to be the full answer, the full idea, the comprehensive Savior. The one and only answer to life's great problem there were also these other things there was and and we we should certainly extend a measure of sympathy particularly for the Jewish believers in the first century because think about it think about it they were those who were even fully committed to all that God had revealed to them they understood that, that their association with God and that their expressions of a, of a right and holy faith in God had to do with the continuance of these ceremonial rules, of the dietary laws, of the sacrificial system, and so forth. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene, He was the one to which all of those pointed. And to enter into those again would be to reject what the Lord Jesus had done. And there are some, even to this day, that don't understand that. Even well-meaning believers that are drawn into certain aspects of Jewish ceremonialism enter into that. Why? Well, it's possible that they are trying to give themselves more than one way to win, as it were. There's only one Savior. There was ever only one Savior. And it wasn't the Jewish ceremonial system. Paul was in agony over making sure the Colossian church understood that looking to these things to assuage one's guilt, to grow in holiness, to gain assurance in Christ, will not only be ineffective, but that it's a rejection of the complete salvation Christ offers and is in fact an offense to him. Paul goes on to say that these things will actually not help but hurt you. The only way to battle flesh, the only way this battle can be won, was plainly stated in Romans 12.21, overcome evil with good. And again in Romans thirteen fourteen, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Chapters 3 and 4 of this letter to the Colossians goes on to lay out these facts. In 3.1, the Bible says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. set your mind on the things that are above. 3.5, put to death what is earthly in you. 3.10, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 312, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 316, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 4:2 continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so the general tone of the letter is to urgently address false teaching and to showcase the preeminence of Christ, the complete Savior for the complete man. The preeminence of Christ, I would draw your attention to chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we're inclined, because because, uh, unfortunately of our own sinful flesh, we're inclined to to think of our justification as this thing uh, that is absolutely uh, uh, sealed, the deal is sealed as it were, but because we, we have such a diminished appreciation for the beauty of fellowship with the person of Christ, that we, 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 we stop. We we're impoverished believers. We have something like this set before us every day. Some men, when they find their wives and they get married, all the lovey dovey fellowship, all the romance. What do you need that for? You got her, man. You bagged her. She's yours. Utterly impoverished. You've taken this woman to yourself to develop a beautiful friendship that reflects the Trinity. But we don't have time for that. We need gimmicks. And the Colossian heresy is a gimmick, and it's a looking away from that which the Lord has set before us in all of its beauty, fellowship with God and His people. Now let's look more closely at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul's in agony. He's struggling. He's, had, he's got this inner conflict. He's, it's not that he's disagreeing with himself. He's just very, very anxious in a holy way, as it were, about the condition of the church at Colossae because they're enduring false teaching and he longs for them to know the truth. Though he had not been there, he didn't plant the church. He feared what would become of them because of the Judaizer error. Look what he desired for them in chapter 2 verse 2 What he really longs for is outward prosperity for them to become a mega church Wait a minute That's not what it says. That their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He desired that their hearts may be encouraged. Isn't this what what we long for? So many things in our lives shake us and introduce unrest in our lives. It seems that there's no end to the things that can kind of shake us up, right? There's no end to the the challenges. We have some good days. Yes, we're between crests, as it were. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be any more waves. The Apostle Paul, he understood this, right? The Lord Jesus Christ has written the Scriptures... Not for a calm sea, but for a tumultuous sea. He desired that they be encouraged. What do they have to be encouraged about? Well, how about the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that... Are you dissatisfied with him? Are you discontent with a whole Savior? This one who is preeminent? He goes on, and he longs that they might be knit together in love. Now, one of the things that... uh, I'm seeing, as I read through the scriptures these days, is this simple concept of fellowship. And the more I look for it, the more I see it. Uh, And it's right here, as a matter of fact, being knit together in love. I'm not making this up, okay? I'm not making this up. This is the beauty of growing up together in Christ, You have to learn, pray, worship, fellowship together in order to truly gain what Paul is speaking about here. This is the blessed life. I can't tell you how many people are trying to get this blessed life in another way. The blessed life of Christ. They embrace the Lord Jesus. For some reason, they can't—they uh, can't brook a involvement, a commitment to a fellowship. But there's no other way. This is. What the Apostle Paul is talking, there's no gimmicks to the blessed life. He longed that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Again, to be clear, the context, the environment of gaining this full assurance of understanding and knowledge is the growing, loving fellowship of the local church. part of the reformation dealt with this very thing the idea that the catholic church had was that in order to know christ one had to be solitary and they involved themselves in this in this even this bodily flagellation as it were but that was utterly rejected rightly so because of the scriptures no that isn't the way to christ that's not the blessed life It's in fellowship with God's people in that which is truly a church. The proclamation of the word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, and an appropriate biblical discipline. Paul's primary concern was their spiritual welfare, not health, not prosperity or greatness. The prosperity of the soul is the best prosperity. Here's fellowship, knit together, growing up together in grace. In grace. Often imitated, perhaps you can finish that phrase, never duplicated. Often imitated, never duplicated. Apparently a slogan brought about by a company that made wedding rings. Often imitated, but never duplicated. That's the faithful church of Christ. Progressing in faith and life will be directly associated with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 3... "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." The point isn't that Christianity is merely Christ in the sense of a minimalist, that all I need to know is Jesus, nothing to do, nothing more to know. The point is in Christ, in the words of Christ, in the salvation of Christ, in the explanation of Christ regarding His Messiahship and the comprehensive Saviorhood for mankind, there's no need to look elsewhere regarding one's entire life in Christ justification, the sanctification, the glorification. However, many reduce this comprehensive nature of Christ to an idea in which it isn't important for them to earnestly invest themselves in what Christ has said and make it their own such that they can enjoy growing levels of assurance and usefulness in other people's lives. This is the human situation. We all we all have experiences that can absolutely relate to this idea. It's the friend who gives you a gift and you're not so interested in the friendship but you really like the gift. What a, what a revelation that is for who we are. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, has given to us the greatest gift. And that interest in true fellowship with Christ, we talked about this last week, certainly involves a fellowship in his sufferings. But it also, of course, involves a fellowship with other sufferers those other pilgrims along the way, those ones that are walking right beside us to Zion. Modern professors of faith are not immune to this problem. The unfortunate reality is that many who confidently profess faith because they look back to a prayer they prayed as a child or a good deed they performed or a special tender moment in church, but their faith isn't a living faith. And they may try to attend to it, More salvation prayers and the taking of communion. But it won't make a dead faith alive. Only Christ can do that. I'm concerned that some who profess faith have no real desire to go on with Christ. Encouraging you to do more would not help you. Because it would potentially fill you with false pride in your human ability to please God. And this is what the false teachers were encouraging the Colossian church to do. When we're given new life in Christ, there is set in motion a longing to be holy. And if that longing to be holy and to know Christ in His person, to be fellowshipping with Him and His people, if that is not present in your life, then I urge you to be alarmed. It seems particularly difficult for humans to admit they're often in a state of self-deception. And this inoculates them from the real assessment the Holy Spirit can make with the Word of God read and proclaimed. Self deception. How does it go when you read the Bible? You read a little bit and you say, I got it. I got this. Do you? You hear somebody with an idea at work, and you begin to pontificate on some amazing and sophisticated argument based on the three verses you read this morning. all of us are in some level of self deception that's why there is a thing called the church and the word of god and fellowship and sunday morning worship and prayer meeting and bible study and fellowship and discipleship there's a there's a A worship service in which we submit ourselves to the things of God, the Word of God. There is this place of prayer where we come together and hear one another's hearts. There's this place of Bible study where we ask questions, we hear solutions, and there's this place of discipleship, this this one-on-one commitment, this mentoring of one and another, this sharpening as one sharpens another. It is unfortunately possible and even probable that we, as God's people, view those as options. They're not options. That's the way we grow. That's it. This is the plan. And when I opt out of those things... It's, I, I don't afford myself the opportunities for those different levels and different depths, if you will, for the Lord to use the people around me, to use His Word, to be involved in other people's lives. When Christ makes a person His own, it is absolutely revolutionary and radical. He fully intends for you to absolutely and totally rearrange your entire life around Him. The proclamation of the Word of God on Sunday morning is absolutely inadequate to flush out areas of deception and debilitating sin in your life. It's inadequate to encourage you in your daily walk with Christ and the incredible challenges of life. It's inadequate as a tool to help you put off the old and put on the new. I wish wish that I could preach a sermon. I wish that I could preach a sermon that would provide for you a spiritual meal that would satisfy you for seven days. It's absolutely impossible. There is no one who can do that, because by design, the Lord Jesus has another way. It's to build our lives around Christ. Engaging with others, cross-checking resources... And helps is also a way to prevent from being taken in by plausible arguments and ideas. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. The Colossian believers had faith. They had saving faith. This was a church. The Apostle Paul, absolutely, there's no indication here that he is declaring or concerned about uh, the validity of their faith, of their position in Christ. There's no reason to wonder about that at all. But he is asking the question, in a sense, and implying the same thing that the Lord Jesus uh, didn't merely imply, but asked the question of those disciples that were on that boat with him on the Sea of Galilee when he was asleep, and they were scared they were going to die. And what did he say? He said, where is your faith? Where is your faith? They had it latent within them, but they weren't exercising it. And that's one of the things uh, that the Apostle Paul is getting at here. This idea that having received Christ, so walk in Him. He's saying, you got Jesus. I trust that Epaphras declared to you the truths about Christ and that you have affirmed that and been brought to life in the Lord Jesus. So walk in Him. So if your walk with Christ isn't reflective of what's revealed in the Word of God, then it is appropriate that you would question how you received Christ. But that actually isn't the point that Paul is getting at. You've received a comprehensive whole Savior, so now walk in Him. In order to walk in Him, you've got to know this Christ. Some are absolutely captive to plausible arguments. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We spoke last week and the week before about this idea that Satan, he traffics people in sin. And this idea of being taken captive has to do with this idea of being plundered, if you will, conscripted back into that which is false. Some are absolutely captive to plausible arguments and philosophies which they can't detect and are in stark opposition to the Word of God because they don't know the Word of God as it addresses these specific areas. It seems to be a popular notion that one of the aspects of the spiritual nature of our walk with Christ is that I gain insight and understanding directly from the Spirit without the means of sincere investment in the Word of God. there are entire denominations of Christianity that are shipwrecked because of this. This is unfortunately very close to our own human experience. We have an idea about a spiritual thing. And that idea potentially has come from philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and the rudimentary or elementary spirits of the world. And when we read the Bible, because we have such an amazing confidence in ourselves, we see the Scriptures as affirming our idea. And this is where faithful orthodoxy, godly believers, fellowship with those who are padding along in faithfulness can help. Many still insist that their spiritual inclinations with no insight from the Word of God and the long history of orthodoxy are correct. To these the truths of Scripture are a mere annoyance. In the make-believe world they have created, don't bother me with the truth. But the Apostle Paul, he, there's, there's really, in a sense, nothing new here, as it were. Christ is preeminent; he is all in all. There is a growing body as the Apostle Paul, of course, involved himself in of the revelation of the Lord Jesus. And they're involved in that as they read this letter, no doubt, from him. 2.9, for in him, that is the Lord Jesus, the whole fullness of Christ of deity dwells bodily. The idea here isn't that it's body as opposed to spirit, but that it's in his body as opposed to his shadow. In other words, before the Lord Jesus came, we only had a shadow of those things. And even the next reference uh, in verse 11, uh, circumcision was a shadow of those things that would in reality be fulfilled in Christ. The Colossian believers were in fact circumcised with that circumcision which the old way only pointed to. It was a shadow, but the invisible circumcision made without hands is that true removal of hell-sending sin, the circumcision of Christ. He goes on to give us the picture and the illustration, of course, of baptism. And that's as it should be, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I couldn't, couldn't say the beauty of the means of grace that baptism is better than that, this picture of what happens in the life of an individual believer. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to him to walk in life. Verse 13, As you were who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands that He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now, the Apostle Paul brings up uh, a very important notion here, canceling the record of debt in this, uh, this idea here of the curse of the law. And so we have, of course, we have this idea the Judaizer error had to do with the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law. It did not have to do with the aspects of the moral law. The proposition with the Judaizers wasn't that they needed to obey the Ten Commandments to gain self-justification. That wasn't the point at all. However, when we talk about the curse of the law, I fear that it is popular. It is a popular idea that this, this record of debt, as it were, this is the law, the curse of the law. What is it? The curse of the law isn't the notion of works righteousness. The curse of the law isn't the idea that you no longer have to attempt to obey the Ten Commandments to be self-justified. That is not the curse of the law. That is not the record of debt that was canceled. The curse of the law isn't that God has set it before us such that we can frustratingly try to obey perfectly to win our own justification. The curse of the law isn't the requirement to obey God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. The curse of the law is that we stand condemned and bound for hell because we've broken God's law, because we've been ungrateful for all God has done for us and with a high hand disobeyed God. The reason that I'm bringing this up is because it may be an inclination to think that the Judaizer error had to do with an imposition of self-justification. It was not that. That isn't the issue. But what happens when we're inclined to view that as the issue, and depending on the church that you grew up in, you may very well view that as the Judaizing error. This idea that God is imposing or has imposed on me the requirement to obey His law, His Ten Commandment law. And what happens is, when I cast off and when I read improperly and misunderstand, for instance, letters like the book of Galatians, I may be inclined to think that the moral law of God is unimportant as the ceremonial law of God. But that would be an utter falsehood. The Apostle Paul is not addressing the moral law of God, except here, canceling the record of debt. What did God do on that cross? What He did on that cross wasn't to relieve you primarily from obeying the Ten Commandments. What He did was, He rescued you because you stood condemned. You stood condemned. And he took your curse for you. The curse of the law is eternal death. Not merely physical death, but spiritual death. And it's not an annihilating death, it's not not an unconscious death, it's a conscious death. That's the curse of the law. Right, So if I misunderstand that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boggle this idea of sanctification because it, it won't work in our own minds because it cannot work if I diminish the moral law of God and see that as what has been cast off, then I no longer have a standard by which I'm following and obeying and growing in Christ. The death of Christ was the death of the God-man. When I insist on viewing the curse of the law as a laborious obedience to the moral law of God, I will inevitably diminish the importance of holiness. And I'll view the moral law of God as that which I now have the option to comply with when convenient. And this is also a rejection of the power of salvation. The Apostle Paul indicates in to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5, that in the last days people may have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. To be satisfied in my Christian life is to flirt dangerously with denying Christ's power and may be an indication of lostness. Again, what the Judaizers said, what the Colossian error had to do with was the reality that the Colossian believers wanted desperately to be with Christ, to have fellowship with Christ and His people, to know Him, to grow in grace. But they had all of their old sins that kept creeping in. They lived in a culture that was godless, and they had, of course, an enemy in Satan that was gunning for them every moment. And the Colossian heresy was this idea. The Judaizers said, oh, no, no, no. Well, what you need is to involve yourself in in physical circumcision. What you need to do is involve yourself in these special feast days. What you need to do is this, that, and the other. The Apostle Paul, again, is saying, no, 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 no. No, Christ is a whole Savior. You come to Him with nothing. You have nothing to offer Him, and He is complete and comprehensive in everything. You want to grow in grace? You want to put off the old and put on the new? There's no other way. There's no gimmick. There's no, there's no fad kind of deal for that. There's no other possibility for that other than putting off the old and putting on the new. That's it. That's it. And we do that together in the context of a loving community of faith, committed to one another. And that's the idea. And therefore, we, we're not casting off the moral law. We're casting off the ceremonial law. And this is, this is an important notion that the Apostle Paul is getting at here in his letter to the Colossians. He says we're filled with Christ's comprehensive fullness. He says we have had the curse of our sins removed and we've had the enemies of our soul defeated. That's what he's saying here in verses 11 12, 13, and 14, and 15. We are filled with Christ's comprehensive fullness. This idea of fullness is a favorite word of the Apostle Paul. This panorama, this idea of Christ being all in all. We are filled with Christ's comprehensive fullness. It's a blank check for holiness. We've had the curse of our sins removed. What is that? Well, you're not bound for hell anymore if you're in Christ. You've had the pollution, the stain removed. You are free in Christ, you are clean before the Savior. We've had the enemies of our soul defeated. Let's pray.